American Capitalism, A History, with Lewis Hyman and Edward Baptist. Now, through the middle of the 1830s, as entre entrepreneurs had borrowed more and more money, whether they were entrepreneurs uh, in the sense of cotton planters or factory owners or merchants in Illinois or Indiana, all around the country, they had borrowed huge amounts of money, expanded their operations, and taken on a lot of debt. Everything was fine as long as the revenue was flowing in. They were able to make their interest payments and maybe even pay a little bit of the principal. But they were also producing much more stuff. In particular, this is true with the cotton plantations. The cotton sector in the South doubled its output between 1830 and 1837. And by early 1836, the cotton price was creeping slowly downward. And people in Britain started to get nervous, specifically people who ran textile factories and even more the people who lent money to those factories. As the amount of uh, cloth and clothes bought uh, by consumers, produced by those factories, but bought by consumers around the world, as that starts to uh, slow down, uh, in comparison to the amount of clothes and textiles that are getting pumped out, those factories start to lay off workers. As they lay off workers, the lenders get even more nervous, and eventually they cut off credit. They also cut off credit to the cotton buyers in Liverpool who buy the American cotton crop each year. And when they do that, the merchants back in New Orleans lose their credit as well. And when they lose their credit, then they stop being able to make their payments to the local banks. The local banks go to the planters to try to call in the loans to the planters, but the planters aren't getting any money. So the entire financial sector shuts down. Pretty soon, this isn't just something in the cotton economy, it's all around the country. The economy has entered a full-blown liquidity crisis in which everybody who's lent money wants their money back so they can pay back the people who have lent them money. But because everybody's in the, the same situation, nobody is able to pay their money back. The economy shuts down, and we are in what is known as the Panic of 1837. In an advanced, complex economy, a liquidity crisis can lead very quickly to deflation, unemployment, massive unemployment, and an even deeper crisis that spirals uh, into worse and worse effects as time goes on. As mass unemployment, for instance, uh, can lead to social and political unrest pretty quickly. This is the situation in which uh, policymakers in Washington, uh, bank officials, cotton merchants, factory owners find themselves in 1837. So how do they get out of it? Well, there's three theories about how to get out of a liquidity crisis. One is to build up enough uh, of a set of uh, financial regulators and institutions uh, that have the capacity to put brakes on runaway crises that you never even get to that point in the first place. In other words, to maintain confidence. This confidence that eventually the economy will be restarted enables borrowers to wait a little longer to get their money back from their creditors instead of producing this sort of avalanche effect. Now, unfortunately, this was not possible in 1837 
because the Bank of the United States had been destroyed. But that's the role that the Federal Reserve and other so-called lenders of last resort play in the world economy today. All right, so what's the second possibility? The second possibility is to let the crisis play out, to liquidate bad debts, as, for instance, Treasury Sec Secretary Andrew Mellon will say during the Great Depression in the 1930s. Liquidate everything, he says. The problem with that is that it produces great suffering, extreme economic suffering. And it's not possible, in any case, to liquidate all the debts if, for instance, you have no reliable currency, if nobody will accept uh, the credit of the government or the credit of individual borrowers, uh, which was the case, again, by 1837. Finally, a third option might be to uh, prime the pump. Uh, this is um, what happens when a government uh, essentially borrows money to put people back to work. When it puts people back to work, infrastructure projects, things like that, which were accomplished during the New Deal, um, are a popular way to do that. When it puts people back to work, the government gets spending started again in the economy. And when spending starts to flow again, then borrowers can start to pay back their debts. This was not an option that Martin Van Buren was interested in taking. But there was one more actor uh, in 1837 who decided he was going to try to accomplish really a couple of these roles at once. So we'll turn to that next. The one actor in the economy uh, perhaps, if we're look, looking at all of the uh, different interlocking financial sectors of the Atlantic economy from Amsterdam to London to New York to New Orleans, the one person who really could uh, do what comes next is Nicholas Biddle. And what he tries to do, he's now the director of a private bank in Philadelphia, a very large one, is to issue what's essentially his own currency to get the economy started again a set of IOUs he call, calls post notes, which he and his deputies give in exchange for cotton. The idea is these will start to circulate in the economy like money, and in a year or so, when the economy is doing better, he will sell the cotton and repay the IOUs and make a nice profit. And things seem great in late 1837 and 1838. People are encouraged by the fact that these post notes are circulating in the economy, and guess what they do? Planters make a huge amount of cotton. They make so much, in fact, that the cotton market, which was recovering, crashes again. The price drops. Biddle goes bankrupt. He dies in 1842, disgraced, uh, bankrupt uh, still. Uh, and the economy, particularly in the South, sinks into worse doldrums. It'll recover in the North a little bit faster. But in the South, the level of indebted indebtedness is so great it's so great that it produces a major policy problem. The banks that have issued the bonds, which are backed by the states, the individual states, go bankrupt. And now the creditors of the banks, the bondholders in the financial markets of the world who bought what were essentially securitized slaves, they want their money back. So they come looking to these, the states of Mississippi and Louisiana and Alabama and so on and ask for repayment. The citizens of those states, most of whom are not slaveholders, do not feel that this is just. They feel that this is an example of what we would in the present day call 
privatizing the gains because it's the planters and the bankers who made the money and socializing the risk, spreading the risk out, extending the cost to all of the citizens uh, of the political unit, in this case, the individual states. So they elect new legislatures, and these legislatures repudiate the bonds. They default on the state debts. And what happens is that for the next 20, and in some cases, 100 years, those states, Mississippi, Alabama, et cetera, are going to be unable to borrow on the world financial market. And they get a very, very bad reputation in general that extends beyond the question of their financial reputation. It turns many elites in the North and in London and other places against the planters of the South. And they start to think that even though this process of an expanding cotton-based slavery is yielding tremendous revenue, maybe it's actually producing a set of elites, the planters of the South, who cannot be trusted. All of these dynamics are part of the development of the conflicts that eventually become the American Civil War. And they start in the financial crisis of the 1830s. For more information, go to edX.org and look for American Capitalism, A History, with Lewis Hyman and Edward Baptist. Or go to facebook.com slash American Capitalism MOOC. This podcast has been brought to you by Cornell X from Cornell University. Thank you.